Hello, my name is Eric Torn, and I am the Associate Chair for Research and Faculty Development for the Department of Computer Science and Engineering, CSE, at Michigan State University. CSE is launching a new series of interviews called CSE Spotlight, where we go behind the scenes to get more insight into some of the notable happenings and people within the department. Today, I'm talking with one of our star faculty, Xiaoming Liu, one of the leading computer vision experts in the world who is especially known for his groundbreaking work in face recognition and facial image analysis. Xiaoming got his PhD from Carnegie Mellon University and then worked at GE Global Research for almost eight years before joining MSU in 2012. We were really lucky to get Xiaoming to join our faculty as he has elevated our already very strong AI pattern recognition computer vision expertise to new heights. Xiaoming has won several notable awards, including being selected as a fellow of the International Association of Pattern Recognition, IAPR, in 2020. Xiaoming, first, thanks for agreeing to sit down with me for this interview today. It's my pleasure, Eric. Thank you for starting the initiative of CSC Spotlight. I think this is a great way to get to know more about the CSC department. Uh, Xiaoming, I know you have done some great work in developing new face frontalization algorithms that can cope with large pose variations so that face recognition systems can take a face image with arbitrary pose rather than a perfect frontal view as input. Without getting too technical, can you give us the high-level ideas behind these big breakthroughs? Sure, Eric. Uh, face recognition algorithms normally take two facial images and, and decide if they belong to the same person. This is a challenging problem because even for the same person, there could be many variations such as pose, lighting, and expressions. Among those variations, pose is normally considered as the, the, the most difficult one. Imagine, let's say, your algorithm is giving a frontal view face and a side view face of myself. How would your algorithm determine if they are both image of myself? This is hard because the two images are captured different size of my face. Now to address this problem, our contribution is really to take a face with an arbitrary pose as an input and develop a deep learning model to separate the information into two, two vectors. One represents the identity and the other represents pose. Once we're able to accomplish this kind of information separation, the identity portion can be used for face recognition and, and the identity portion and the, another pose vector can also synthesize a face image at another pose, such as a frontal view. Now, turning a non-frontal face image into a frontal view is called a face frontalization. Our CVPR 2017 paper is a breakthrough in this uh, important topic because for the first time, we were able to perform face frontalization from a complete profile uh, face while previous work can only work with a face that's slightly facing the side, such as 30 degrees. Uh, in less than four years since it was published, uh, this work has been cited over 500 times. Uh, I hope this high-level idea comes through. Uh, yeah, I, I think it does. That, that's really fascinating, very, very interesting. A quick follow-up question. How do you evaluate the effectiveness of your approach? For example, how do you know that the frontalized image is accurate enough to do face recognition? Are there conditions where it is likely this will work and other conditions where it likely will not work? Well, the most important uh, evaluation is face recognition, right? Because essentially our approach is a representation learning method. Therefore, we can use the learned identity representation for face recognition. 
whose performance will indicate how well the identity representation has been learned. Note that the frontalized face is directly generated from this identity representation. So therefore, if the representation is well learned, the frontalized face will accurately reflect the appearance of the subject. However, the actual quality of this frontalized face has no direct quantitative evaluation. We often evaluate it by visual inspections, you know, just human look at it. There are, of course, conditions where the algorithm will likely fail, for example, when the lighting is very strange, when the subject wearing scarf uh, or special sunglasses, right? So basically anything outside the typical distribution of the training data set might potentially cause, cause issues. That, that's really interesting. But if there are, if, if the conditions are normal, there's good lighting, there's no strange obstructions on the face, pretty much if you, you can take a side view and a front view and be able to determine the identity correctly. True, true, true. Yeah, so in our, in our lab website, we even have a demo systems where you can upload you know, any side view photo of yourself or anyone. We can just frontalize the face for you in, in a few seconds. Well, that, that's really neat. I'll have to go try that out. <laughs> and uh, we'll, we'll, we'll provide a link so that our, our, our listeners can go try that out too. Yeah, that's great. Well, that, no, that makes a lot of sense. And uh, that, that's, that's really fascinating. All right. Well, I know you're working on many other problems right now, uh, too many to describe them all for our audience. Uh, can you talk about one or two problems that you're working on right now that most excite you and why you chose them? Sure, of course. So as you know, uh, facial, uh, facial recognition and facial analysis is a topic that I've been continuously working on since my PhD at uh, CMU. Now, starting about five years ago, I've been getting into another field called perception for autonomous driving. Uh, in this field, we develop algorithms to process the visual data captured by the sensors uh, installed on the vehicle so that the vehicle can see the moving objects and understand the surrounding environment, just like a human driver. So clearly many reasons to choose this uh, topic or field. You know, for example, this topic is clearly very important for automatic driving, uh, which will require many research breakthroughs in the coming decades. It is also a fundamental element in robotics, you know, when, uh, when robots moving around either indoor or outdoor, right? Further, the state of Michigan is known for its auto industry. Uh, software and automatic driving are increasingly more important in the auto industry. We hope our research will make a more impact to our home state. Uh, some of the perception problems are really exciting to me. You know, for example, uh, my graduate student, Garrick, who is also a local um, Michigan grown-up. So he has been developing an algorithm to perform 3D detection from 2D driving videos. Imagine you place a smartphone on top of your, your dashboard and capture videos while driving. From the video stream, his algorithm can in real time detect all the moving objects, including cars, bicycles, and pedestrians in 3D space. That is knowing how far away they are from your cars and even compute their velocity in terms of miles per hour. Uh, so other perception problems, including estimating uh, depths from a single image and reconstructing 3D shapes of generic objects. I'm really looking forward to those research problems in the next few years. Wow, that's that's really neat. I did, just using the technologies is advanced enough in a smartphone that you can do this perception with your smartphone in real time. How far away do you think these techniques are from being deployed in actual cars? Good question. You know, they are uh, actually being deployed into a car as we speak. 
many of those L3 uh, autonomous driving vehicles are using AI algorithms to process sensory data in order to understanding the environment. The main difference between what is being used and what we are developing now is that the current algorithm are all heavily relying on the data from multiple sensors and hope the redundancy of the sensor can improve the robustness of the systems, which is the right direction for the safety from the safety perspectives, right? While in academia, we are interested in more challenge problem, problem setting, you know, where we only use a single sensor, which is a, a RGB camera, we're more interested in pushing the limit on what algorithm can do, right? To see how much algorithm can achieve uh, only using a low cost sensor. As a result, our impact to industry will not be immediate. But hopefully, you know, what we are developing now will be part of the future technology being implemented as one component of the perception system. Oh, that's, that's neat. So this would be one of the sensors and, and one of the things that it would be fused with other sensors and other approaches? True, true, yeah. Okay, really fascinating. Okay, uh, let me follow up with this question. Computer vision research and perception research, I guess, has changed a lot since you were a graduate student at CMU, right? Uh, back then, the best solutions were not using deep learning to solve these computer vision problems, but now all the best solutions do. How has this change affected you, and how did you manage to not only survive this paradigm change, but thrive in it? Excellent question, uh, Eric. Indeed, uh, this is a huge change. Uh, when I was doing my PhD at CMU, we mainly, you know, learned how to formulate a computer vision problem and using classic machine learning optimization to solve it. Uh, back in 2012, a breakthrough was reported when deep learning was applied to the image net recognition problem. Then I clearly you know, witnessed the number of deep learning uh, works started to increase in CVPR 2013 and CVPR 2014, both are top conference in the computer vision community. After CVPR 2014, I immediately asked my senior students to get into deep learning. And after 2015, basically all my graduate students have, have embraced uh, deep learning. I think once all students are heading into the same direction and working together, the multiplicative effect can be quite large. Wow, that's, that, that's really uh, uh, neat. Was it difficult to get everyone moving in this direction? Uh, were some students better suited for the original approaches and had a struggle, or, or was it pretty smooth for everyone to, to make this transition? Uh, I think, of course, there was some difficulty, and, and you know, I think the transition was not the same for everyone. But I guess uh, I was studying with a few senior students who are more mature, so let them set up few, let them set up good examples for junior students. I think once junior students see uh, success from the seniors, I think they are more willing to learn and to adapt. Oh, that's, that's, that's great. And that, that makes a lot of sense. All right, well, uh, let me do a little bragging for you with our audience. You have truly an amazing publication record. In fact, it is so great that if you go to the website csrankings.com, your publication record is the dominant factor that pushes MSU into being one of the top 10 most productive computer vision groups and universities in the United States. For example, if I'm not mistaken, you had seven papers published last year at CVPR and four at ECCV. How can you publish so many papers at once at such competitive conferences? What's your secret? Well, MSU has great students, right? This is probably not a secret since everyone knows our student quality are high, uh, but if we have any success, this will be the number one factor. 
Uh, Erica, as you know, MSU has extremely high reputation in the area of pattern recognition, biometrics, and uh, computer vision, right, due to Dr. Anil Jain's almost half-century dedication to MSU. This reputation has helped us tremendously in attracting top students. Uh, in the past decade, as Dr. Arun Ross, myself, Dr. Vishnu Budadi, and Dr. Suja Liu joined the department, our collective presence in the department further enhanced our ability to recruit top students. Uh, looking forward, I think that as long as we continue to recruit and spend quality time with top students, we will remain competitive. Uh, even a highly competitive field uh, in AI, such as computer vision, data mining, machine learning, NLP. You know, given that uh, the newly hired CSE faculty are all really top-notch and very productive, I'm quite opportunistic about the future growth of the department. I have to second that uh, sentiment. We, we really have hired well you being an excellent example of that from 2012. So, uh, but you're right, uh, we, we've done a great job hiring and, and I, I agree that I think our trajectory looks really good. I should add that beyond your own individual awards, you have a great record with your students. Uh, you have had three of your students win first place at the College of Engineering's annual Fitch H. Beach Award that recognizes the most outstanding graduate researchers within the College of Engineering at MSU. So you've obviously been a great uh, advisor and mentor to your students. What is the secret to your success? Uh, well, I think uh, my students are quite lucky in the Fish Beach competition uh, because within our college, I've always seen very strong candidates for this award and any of them is qualified for the top place in the award. Uh, having said that, if there's any you know, secret to train my students, I learned everything from my advisor, uh, Professor Zhu Han Chen, uh, when I was in CMU. Uh, Professor Chen was you know, both tough as well as kind in that he sets a really high bar for research and publications. If a paper can be submitted after many iterations with him, it will very likely be accepted. And uh, he is also a kind advisor. You know, I remember in the last year of my PhD uh, study, I went to Stony Brook uh, almost once every month and spent half of my time there because my girlfriend and my wife uh, just arrived uh, at Stony Brook for her graduate study. Uh, Professor was very accommodating during that time. And therefore, you know, the most important thing I learned from Professor in mentoring students is to treat students with kindness. And in the meantime, set a high bar academically. Uh, similarly in MSU, I saw the same mentoring style from my mentor, Professor Anil Jain. Uh, both Professor Chen and Professor Jian sets great example of being an advisor. I felt that even though I could not achieve their height, as long as I'm heading in the same direction they are, as they are, I would be doing fine. Yeah, no, that's true. It, it will take a lot to catch up to both of those two, uh, Anil and Suhan. Uh, but I will say you are also doing a great job, and I would not rule it out. Let me change gears here a little bit. Xiaoming, you spent roughly eight years at GE before coming to MSU, where you have now also been for roughly eight years. Can you talk about the difference between working in industry and working in academia? What advice would you have for our students as they think about their career paths? Right, it is often, it's of, of, of course very, diff very different. Uh, industry research is product driven, right? And we have to make an impact to the product. Academia research is looking for new problems, uh, new algorithms, or deeper understanding of old problems. For our graduate student, I suggest uh, everyone to think about uh, what, what is your passion and what excites you. 
right? If you're really excited about making product everyone can use, you should go to industry, right? If you like to always solve new problems without worrying about whether it might be commercialized, academia might be a better option. Doing one to two internship or visiting another uh, institute uh, to know yourself better, um, because you know either career path is not easy. Your passion and your heart are one of the most important factors in in the decision process. Since it would be harder to go very far without passion. That's great advice, particularly uh, you know as we think about this past year, 2020, which has been so crazy. Definitely takes passion to continue and, and succeed uh, during the, the during this year. How has this pandemic affected you, your students, your teaching, and your research? Uh, that is very true. You know, for me, the pandemic uh, allows me to spend less time in commuting, uh, traveling, as well as shopping, and spend more time with my families, which uh, is 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 a good part. But on the other hand, I've, I've, uh, I've also learned to adjust how I teach and supervise students. I think that our students uh, have been affected most by the pandemic. Uh, you know, they are forced to be isolated away from their lab mates, which leads to far less social times as well as opportunity to exchange ideas with others. This of course has a negative impact, but I'm really happy that all my students have really gone extra miles to adapt to the situation and maintain their research efforts during this difficult time. Uh, like everyone, we'll hope that the pandemic will be over soon and we can meet face-to-face -face soon. I think we're, we're definitely all very eager for that. Uh, well, so Xiaoming, uh, 2020 not only saw a global pandemic, we also experienced a rising awareness of systemic bias. Now, normally in computer science, we often think that uh, these types of social issues do not pertain to us. But facial recognition is definitely a technology where some have expressed concerns that deployed facial recognition algorithms do not perform as well with women or people of color. Can you talk a little bit about this issue and what can be done to address this? Uh, this is an excellent and timely question. Uh, yes, computer science is certainly a field that was much more about solving science and engineering problems and the less of uh, society issues at least when we were having our CS education. However, in recent years, as computer science is making much more impact to the society through its technology, there are increasingly more society issues coming out. For example, gender and racial bias in face recognition is one example of this. My take in addressing these issues including three different perspectives. First of all, we should have a positive attitude towards the issues. Yes, these are new issues we have never uh, deal with. Let's face it and learn how to address issues just like how we have addressed technology issues in CS. Secondly, on the technical side, let's treat those issues as research opportunities. For example, right, what are the reasons that a face recognition system would demonstrate bias for individuals with different gender and racial groups? Can we improve the algorithm design so that such a bias can be minimized? These are all excellent research questions for the research community to work on. In fact, Dr. Jian and one of his PhD students, uh, Shi Xue, and myself have been collaborating on this topic and provided our answer to these questions through a number of publications. We certainly welcome more researchers to join for us so that we can have a deep understanding uh, of this issue from, a, from the technical perspective. 
Finally, society issues cannot be fully addressed by technology alone. As computer scientists, uh, we should uh, you know, work with researchers from other fields, including social science, as well as government agencies to jointly address this. Actually, among government agencies, there has been some discussion on whether we should establish a federal agent, agency to regulate face recognition technology and its usage in society, similar to how the FDA regulates medicine. In my view, as we address these uh, societal concerns of CS technology, we answer more research questions, gain more understanding of the technology, and eventually uh, deliver a better technology to, uh, to society that mitigates the original concerns. In this way, uh, it can be a win-win situation. That's really interesting, and uh, I'm really happy to hear that you've been working on this problem. You, you mentioned you had some results. Can you talk a little bit about what your results have been in this area? Sure, sure. So in our um, publications, we basically trying to first of all understand how severe is the bias issue uh, with respect to the gender as well as well as racial groups. And by understanding that, then we start to design you know different kind of algorithms to see how the racial bias can be mitigated um, by using advanced algorithm design. Um, so we have shown that uh, if the algorithm can be designed differently, uh, you can actually having a facial recognition system with a lower, with less biasness, while in the same time maintain similar recognition accuracy. That's great. One work was published in ECCV and another work uh, will hopefully, you know, we will show up in, in, in this year's CVPR. Great. No, no, that's, that's very timely. So thank you. Well, well, this has been, uh, that, that was a great answer. This has been a great interview. Uh, I usually like to close with something a little less technical. So uh, can you tell us what you like to do when you are not being a professor? Uh, sure, sure. I do, I do some sports, including hiking, play tennis, and uh, squash, and badminton. Um, so that's a great way to get me off my laptop and socialize with my colleagues. I also like cooking, uh, you know, making dinners and the lunch during pandemic uh, is also my time to relax on, on the I mean, on the daily basis. I, I don't live that far away. Maybe I should uh, go over there and get some takeout one of these days. <laughs> well, Xiaoming, thank you so much for joining me today. Uh, I realize things are extremely busy in this most unusual year. So I really appreciate you taking the time to join me. Sure, sure. Thank you, Erica, for working on the CSE Spotlight. I enjoyed the conversation. Well, in closing, uh, thanks to you, our audience, for listening to this latest edition of CSE Spotlight. I hope you enjoyed it, and we will be back soon with more interviews.